Well, it's time for another episode of the Pixel Drone Show, and this week we have an amazing guest. and uh, And I've known Charles for a while now. I've, I've worked with Charles for a while. Our, our guest is Charles Werner. He's with Drone Responders, but he's also so much more. He's done a lot for this industry on the public safety side, and and we're going to ask a lot of questions uh, re related to uh, public safety. But let me tell you a little bit more about Charles. He's not only the director of Drone Responders; uh, they're a non-for-profit organization that helps unite the first responders that use drones and they also help them maximize their operations. So that's their, their main motto. Uh, Charles is the uh, Chief Emeritus of the Char Charlottesville, Virginia Fire Department. Uh, he's been doing this for, for a long time. Uh, he served as a Senior Advisor and Acting Deputy State Coordinator for the Virginia Department of Emergency Management. As you can tell, Charles has an amazing background uh, to come and, and talk about drones. So Charles, how did you get into drone? How did you get the idea of starting uh, the uh, the drone responders program? Well, throughout my career, technology has been uh, a big part of my career. Uh, I was always looking at how could technology enhance what we do, either make it safer for the public safety or to make us more effective in what we do. And then just as I was about to retire as the fire chief in Charlottesville, 2014, 2015, I started looking in and seeing the drones, reading some of the new stories that were coming out and thought this really might be the next big thing for public safety because of what it offers, just what we knew in the early stages. And I think in 2015, I wrote my first article for Firehouse Magazine because I'm also a contributing editor for them. And it was on uh, kind of a vision forward and, and I had identified seven use cases that where I thought drones would make a, a big difference in the fire service specifically. Um, you know, advance forward to today, we, we did a study for drone responders and now we've identified over 17 use cases, which they, they themselves can be subdivided into three or four subcategories. So you're seeing about 40 different ways public safety are using drones. And so that's how I got into it. That's awesome. And and you talk to a ton of public safety departments. And what is the challenge that you see when they, they try to get a public safety program started with drones? What is uh, What are some of the challenges that you see on a regular basis? And, and uh, how do you approach those? And how do you help these, these public safety programs get started? So let me, let me go back to the start and show a kind of a variance or a difference of what's happened in this time frame. For the people coming in from public safety in the, in the time of 2016, 2017, 2016 are when the rules changed. That's when we got COAs and we got Part 107. Before that, it was really difficult because you had to have flight ground school. You had to have a class one medical. So that was kind of a, a roadblock. But even the ones, once we got past that and we got Part 107 and COAs, uh, we still ran into the issue of people not knowing what this meant. What is a drone? How does it offer us advantages? What missions can we fly? Nobody knew. And so everybody that started programs early on were doing everything from scratch. And some, some were good, some were not so good. But again, there was nothing, you couldn't pull the book off the shelf and tell you this is how you do it, which really kind of led to the discussion of, okay, what can we do to change this methodology? Because I also sit on the International Fire Chiefs Technology Council, which I helped to start um, when I was a fire chief. And what we learned in that technology world was the more that we can capture and share, the faster we can advance the technology because now people have that information to grab. So one of the things that we did as drone responders is said, let's create a resource center. And the resource center now has over 600 documents, which are SOPs, best practices, lessons learned, reports, 
just about anything that you're looking for, COA guidance, starting a program. We've got folders on that that walk you from the very beginning to, first of all, for guidelines and considerations, what are you getting into to understand? Because people don't realize that flying, uh, well, actually, let me back up, buying and flying are the two easiest things that we're going to do. But now the decisions of what you're going to buy become more difficult. And then when you also look at the other things that go with it, the, uh, the, the spare props, the batteries, the chargers, and all this that goes with it, that's kind of gives you a glimpse that your expenses are not just one and done. They continue throughout the process over the next year and on, on coming years. And that's something that's kind of, um, I've had discussions with some of the public safety departments out there, and that's something that they have sometimes a hard time convincing the higher ups um, in getting the, the budget fitted. And, you know, getting the drone program started is one thing, but getting it continuing is also sometimes a bit of a struggle. Have, have you noticed that as well in some, some locations? Yes, we've seen that. Uh, well, first of all, we had uh, before the hurricanes, you know, drone had a connotation that was it was military. It was reconnaissance. It was, you know, used to to do missions of dropping bombs. So we had that that word drone became a negative thing that we had to overcome. The hurricanes probably made the biggest difference in changing perception and acceptance by the public because of the tens of thousands of flights that were flown in conjunction with manned aircraft to help in those situations. Um, but yes. So even still, uh, for the chiefs, that if we got beyond the negativity, there still is this resistance about going forward with drones because they just don't know. And what I've seen and heard from a number of people that have been effective at, at convincing uh, their leadership is they basically take them outside, do a demonstration. No more talk. Talking doesn't get you anywhere. Do the demonstration, show the value. And it's at that moment that they actually have that aha moment of the question comes in of how long is it going to take us to get that program up and running? So there's this immediate change from resistance to now how fast can we do it? Yeah, I've, I, this is something that needs to be noted for those of you that are listening that are in the public safety world. Uh, that's, uh, I think that's a great advice right here. The, the other thing that goes with that, uh, Greg, is that also utilizing other departments that are near and around you that have had success in, the, in their programs, that also gives some comfort levels to the leadership because they see it's being done by someone else. You know, there's this saying that uh, you can be on the leading edge or the bleeding edge. And for those people going ahead and cutting their way through all this, they've done that, that bleeding. So most of us want to be on the leading edge now where we can feel comfortable going forward, especially when you're leadership for a community and you want to make sure that that goes forward. So um, what are some of the most common hazards firefighters and other first responders would otherwise not be aware of if it weren't for drones being on the scene? So anytime a firefighter responds to a fire, a hazardous material response, a structural issue like we're seeing in Miami, uh, some other places, um, you're not seeing things, hazards that exist uh, on the ground because you're only, you're only having that, uh, that horizontal view. When you put that drone in the sky, you're able to see a lot of different things. In a fire situation, uh, if you're using a thermal image uh, camera, you're able to take a heat signature and see where the fire might be located that you can't see. You can see structural integrity issues, which would keep firefighters from being on the roof of doing ventilation, which is one of the most dangerous places they'll be. Uh, you might be able to see hazardous uh, containers that are in areas that may have not be seen as you initially arrive on the scene. And um, 
I mean, the list goes on. And then, and then if, you, if you toss that over on the law enforcement side, when you're going into a very dangerous situation, uh, it might be a drug entry. Uh, it might be uh, some other kind of active shooter or, or hostage situation. You may not be able to go into certain places and be able to see, but with the drone, you're able to see before you arrive. You're able to see as your entry teams make their way in uh, and you're able to see what happens as that that scene unfolds. And we've seen through many of the law enforcement situations that that drone above will capture someone coming out a window, making an escape, throwing a gun into the bushes, throwing drugs on the roof, uh, making their way out the back, actually changing their shirt. They've, they've kind of anticipated they might be it may be uh, raided. So they already have a shirt underneath. So they take a black shirt off and now they've gone to a pink shirt. Well, the drone's capturing all this. So now the person walks out on the street on the next block and thinks I'm free and clear because they're looking for somebody in a black shirt. And sure enough, the, the officers are informed that the guy's changed his clothing to a pink shirt. And they just walk up and say, have you seen a guy in a black shirt? And he comes up and talking to him. And before he knows that he's under arrest. So it's, it's being able to see all those things we can't see. And going back to the fire for one more minute, we have for many years used our elevating streams to, to put water onto fires. We're trying to extinguish from a high level but more than not, uh, we were missing the fire because we couldn't see where the stream is going. Now we can see with the heat signature, the stream, and, and actually apply it directly on where it's going. Uh, and then uh, one of the most famous fires we've had recently is the Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, a drone was used there to actually determine the best place where they could bring another robot, the Colossus, in that had a heavy stream to place to stop the spread of fire from beyond that. So from a safety standpoint, they were able to determine the best way to attack it. So, and I could go on probably for another hour, but I think that gives you at least a glimpse as to some of those issues you asked about. I, th I think the, uh, the story about the Notre Dame is especially interesting because I think there the drone was actually able to provide data that allowed the fire crews to make different decisions and actually preserve uh, more of the cathedral than otherwise uh, likely would have happened. So I think that was like one of the first major stories where a drone played a, uh, played a crucial role. Um, talking about a, a much more recent disaster in Surfside, Florida, uh, almost a week ago is the time of this recording. We had this 12-story uh, condo tower that's, uh, that collapsed. I think it's about 55 apartments. Uh, more than 150 people are reported missing, I understand. And only 10, or give or take, have, have been found and identified at this point. Uh, do you know if drones have been used in, in that situation as well? And if so, can you tell us more about how they're being used and, and the kind of uh, applications that we're looking at? Yes, yeah, so what I've been told is that drones have been used from the very beginning of the incident when they arrived. They got there very quickly to start doing reconnaissance and looking. Uh, I've heard there have been as many as four or five operations op uh, operating uh, in tandem from different sides. They've basically divided the scene up into different uh, sectors and, and sides. So they may have one team working on side one, one on side two, one on side three, one on side four, and they may be doing similar or different missions. Uh, they've been doing uh, capturing this and trying to do now modeling of the scene. Uh, I know that uh, Florida State University and Crasar are in there doing uh, mapping recordings every hour. So they're capturing any kind of changes that what's happening uh, on the pile itself. And now I don't know if you heard this morning, but they've halted all of the research and rescue operations because they're seeing uh, cracks and, and some instability in the adjacent building. So, now and, and so the drones are also playing a role in looking at those kind of things and capturing uh, what's happening uh, in that particular space. But uh, evidentiary uh, from a reconnaissance standpoint, and then when when they do the forensics, if what I understand is if they're finding 
some of the remains that they're, they're actually going and capturing that uh, as part of the forensics with the drone. So it, there's a lot going on with drones and it shows how, mu- how, how much value they add. Do you know if uh, in the earlier days, uh, right after the disaster, drones with thermal cameras have been used, used at all to look for survivors or hotspots and fires potentially? Or Well, I think once we had drones that entered into uh, the world that we're in now, thermal image became one of the big ones for fire because of that very reason. Uh, they use it in the wildfire settings of flying above and seeing not only where the fire is, but where it's headed. Uh, and they can also see hot spots that maybe have left behind. And, and when you get in the whole wildfire situation, drones are being used for a multiplicity of uses. So one, uh, they're doing reconnaissance. Uh, but before the reconnaissance, they're even doing uh, flyovers and examining and, and analyzing the fuel load on the floor. So they're determining where the risks are in advance, where they might be able to take some preventive action. Uh, then they're used um, to follow the fire, to, to do the hot spots, to do thermal imaging. But then what they're also doing is they're using the ability to carry uh, incendiary devices called dragon eggs, which they can fly out to the perimeters of the fuel load and do what we call backfiring. And they'll drop these incendiary devices, which will start a fire that will burn back toward the head of the fire and they'll come together and it reduces the fuel. So yes, drones are continuing to continue in these areas. And, and speaking of all this, you have a map on the Drone Responders website that shows all of the different areas where drones are doing things for good. Can you talk a little bit more about the project and what the, what data comes out of the project and maybe how you use the data? Sure. One of the things that uh, I mentioned to you earlier is that uh, we learn more when we know about other departments that have programs. Uh, we also have the opportunity, as you've seen in Texas, they've got the, the Gulf Coast and the North Texas uh, public safety regional response teams that they've set up. Um, The idea was let's identify the teams on a map around the world first and foremost, so that we could actually know who's out there. Um, But secondly, to create a network of sharing and collaboration that we have certain information that people are putting in automatically. So we go in, when did you start your program? Uh, how many aircraft do you have? How many remote pilots do you have? What aircraft are you flying? What missions are you flying? And what payload capabilities do you have? So what this does is at a quick glance, you can look to see uh, what people are doing and how mature their program is and what technologies and missions. But we we also have seen that um, people want to know, are you doing part 107? Are you doing a COA? Are you doing both? That's captured on there. And so you can see that we're also working with the Canadian Emergency Robotics Response Association, CERA, and we're going to do a different survey for Canada because, as you know, some of their regulatory things are different than ours. And then we can add that to the map to where they will still be on the same map, but we can add a layer specific to Canada. Um, and then in addition to that, we're coming out with not only the map, but a dashboard. And the dashboard will allow you to filter by discipline, by state, Uh, and by some other characteristics. So now if you want to say who's in the state of Texas, because I want to set up and and identify them all, I'll have that information uh, to be able to use maybe for mutual aid uh, and so on. So it really is a network of a lot of things that can occur from it. Organizations have been instrumental in providing um, first responders with the best UAV training out there. Well, that's one of the areas that we're having um, a little bit of a struggle. Um, 
there isn't a widespread adoptance of standards. Uh, I think ASTM has uh, the F3379 standard for public safety remote pilots, but it also pulls into some other things. And then we see NIST. NIST has been a big piece of the, the standard test methods for small and mid aircraft system where they create test lanes, which kind of create a proficiency model that says, from an objective standpoint, here are some assignments for you to do, fly these missions and do that. But overall, there is no standardized training or national training, uh, which is one of the reasons that we partnered with Pilot Institute to do the COA and Part 107 training, because there is no other place that you can go and get that information, which has been received very well. And we hope to, to work on this kind of level towards some higher level training that we'll be discussing as well. Question I have for you is, um, you work closely with the FAA, and I think what a lot of people understand as well is that the regulatory framework is always uh, one or two steps behind uh, reality, it seems. Uh, from your perspective and from the perspective of first responders, like what are the biggest regulatory hurdles uh, that the FAA might be able to help us clear, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, that, that would help us to, to apply drones and use drones more often and more successfully? Yeah, so I will... I will acknowledge that the FAA has a difficult job. Uh, the, first, the first thing we have to overcome is ensuring the safety of the national airspace by the actions we take, making sure that our people are trained well and that they understand the, the regulatory space. Um, having said that, uh, I will say that the FAA has come a long way in a short period of time. And I will give you one example. Uh, we are trying, we're trying to achieve a tactical beyond visualized sight waiver, which allows us to fly 1,500 feet beyond the visual line of sight during dangerous missions, like a hazardous materials where we can't put people close to that close to the scene or to a, a hazmat, not a hazmat, but a hostage situation uh, or an active shooter where we literally don't want the remote pilot to be in, in direct uh, harm's way. So they, they, have, they have found the ability for us to determine how can we allow public safety to fly in what they would consider a higher risk situation, uh, but in a way that it is an acceptable risk based on the circumstances that were in place. And I think a year before, we would have never even imagined that this was possible. So I think uh, the Beyond Visual on Sight ARC is the next big thing. Uh, we are on the ARC, and uh, I'm on the security subdivision of determining how do you make sure that the aircraft is secure, uh, and then there are others that are participating. But I think that Beyond Visual on Sight uh, rulemaking is going to be the next big thing to help us advance the technology forward to show if we want to do that, what's necessary for us to accomplish that, put us all on the same page. I'm excited about this. Actually, we had a discussion this morning with Haya on that exact topic, the local beyond visual line of sight versus the, the the far beyond visual line of sight. I think it's two completely different operations, and I think it needs to be approached two completely different ways. So I'm, I'm glad you're on the on the arc to talk about this because that's, uh, especially for firefighters, you know, I live in, uh, in an area where we have forest fires. We have, I think, 22 active forest fires in Arizona at the moment, uh, maybe a little bit less because we had rain yesterday, thankfully. Uh, but you know, I, I would love to see our uh, hotshots be able to deploy a small drone, get on the field and then be able to send it and see what's going on. So um, I want to talk about remote ID because this is also kind of a big part of, of the regulation that's coming up. Uh, the what do you think remote ID, what kind of effect do you think remote ID is going to have on public safety operations? 
And kind of a follow-up question to this, how is this going to affect certain types of operation when the people on the ground may be able to find the location of the drone in the air where at the moment they may not be able to do that? Yeah, so on the positive side, I think it's going to give us an ability to identify uh, authorized and unauthorized flights during a situation. For example, let's let's use the Surfside situation. Being able to monitor the aircraft that are flying and see rogue drones that may be coming in from different directions would help maintain safety in the airspace and, and prevent uh, people from interfering with the operations. Uh, on the, the side where... Um, they can identify perhaps even where a law enforcement drone is or it's it's coming. We're hoping that there are some ways that we can do some specific missions that are, uh, I forget what they classify it now, but may may create that anonymity so they won't be able to, to see where law enforcement is flying. I don't think it's so much for on the fire side. We don't really have that much of a concern of people knowing that we're flying. But when you're, when you're doing it for law enforcement towards drugs and those kind of things, the other thing that I see with remote ID that's, that's potentially positive is that if we can get some something that's capturing the remote ID as it's occurring and aggregate that data, it's going to be kind of interesting to see where flights are taking place that are authorized, unauthorized, and maybe even see some historical data to where we can see are there flights near critical infrastructure that shouldn't be uh, and other things. So I think that remote ID from a localized standpoint is going to be one thing, but I think there's going to be opportunities to take that localized information and synthesize that into a database that actually looks at things on, on a bigger picture of what's happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because in, in many cases, uh, either with bigger incidents like what we, or accidents, what we've seen disasters, you might say, what we see the surf side, but also the wildfires, is you do see a lot of people coming up with their own drones and fly unauthorized to get aerial images, maybe for their own sake, or maybe they want to sell it online somewhere. Um, we, as, as, as uh, the Pixel Drone Show, we provide, uh, we advocate, of course, for, for safe drone flying. Can you perhaps help uh, explain to our listeners here why it's so important that you keep your drones away and you don't fly near uh, the scene of an accident or a wildfire and interfere with the rescue operations for people? Well, and I think that's the first part. What you just mentioned at the end is interfering with the operations. When a drone flies into a wildfire setting and there's manned aircraft that are coming in in different areas dropping retardants and or water, uh, if a drone comes up in the area that's identified, they often have to ground their activities. That means the firefighting operation actually stops. Uh, and that, that means that homes can be destroyed, other people can be in danger, and it may even endanger the wildfire firefighters that are out there. So, And then when you go into a hazmat situation or the surfside situation, uh, again, your flights may interfere with what they're doing for the search operation, and they may have to stop. Uh, so that's the, the big thing, the danger to people and the danger to the operation. So you've accomplished a lot since um, starting drone responders. You know, you've kind of just tied everything together and uh, all the resources and what have you. Um, can you share any new milestones or goals that you hope to accomplish in the future that you haven't yet? Yes, well, I think the, the big one on our list is training. Uh, I think we want to work on trying to develop a national strategy of how we train our public safety remote pilots, uh, that we, we enable it in such a way that it creates regional training opportunities, that there's online training opportunities. That's the big thing for us, I think, is that if we train people the most effective way, uh, and that goes everything from the language that we use to the operations that we do, the proficiency definitions, 
all of that also helps us make uh, us have a better standing in the manned aircraft world uh, because they feel more comfortable that we understand the airspace, we're talking the same language, and that our proficiencies are such a place that we know how to, to manage that during the flights. Uh, the other, another milestone is for us to continue to expand and grow throughout the world uh, just so that we can create a network of sharing so that we can learn from the best practices of other people and collect that and share it as quickly as possible. Again, um, I don't think anybody imagined that we would see 30, 40 different ways public safety would be using drones. And now you're starting to see drones become uh, kind of a mainstay uh, in public safety where it wasn't before. Well, you, you mentioned the world, and I think that's an interesting concept right here. What do you see as a challenge? And I can think of several in my head of joining hands with other people in, in other countries, obviously from a regulatory standpoint. Do you think we can learn from other people? We can share our knowledge? Uh, and and what, what's, the, what's the goal there? Uh, well, that, the whole idea is to learn what other people are doing, because some people are trying things and experimenting in areas that we're not. I mean, I think in Europe was the first place they did one of the studies on search and rescue about what was the efficacy of using drones in those search and rescue situations. And what we learned from that was there wasn't a significant difference in using drones to find a lost person as opposed to not using a drone because there was no standard approach in how to be able to utilize that technology. So, and if you introduce that technology into a search situation where people have never used it before, it often becomes a distraction. So what they did learn was that the drone does have some specific advantages to help in the process, like uh, flying ahead and looking to see what does the landscape look like, what areas, and they can do quick searches. So if you have a child in a certain area that's got a bright colored clothing on and you put a drone straight up, you might find that person in 30 seconds. Uh, but it, it gives the terrain and then the, the ability for the drone to fly in search areas that may not be accessible by people on foot uh, or dangerous areas. Uh, so they, there is some things that can be done, and that's what we're learning. And that was in Europe. So we learned from that that we've got to ch change the model. And I think there's the same thing true. We're seeing uh, London Fire Brigade talking with FDNY. Uh, and, and a lot of this sharing that's going on. And then we try to bring that to the to the AUVSI shows, to the commercial UAV expos, and bring panels in of people to be able to share what's happening in their world so that those conversations can go even further. Have you been impressed with any countries at the moment that you've seen doing something above and beyond or, or maybe even ahead of the United States? Well, I think um, the London Fire Brigade has really taken a, a really big jump in doing it. They're, they did um, <clears throat> one of the most recent impressive demonstrations was they flew over an area to, to clear an area where they'd found, a, I think, a World War II bomb. And then they were able to they were able to not only make sure everybody was out, then they monitored it as they, as they blew up the bomb. They detonated it and they could see <clears throat> what took place in the whole area around it. And it kind of gave a big snapshot of when this detonates what it looks like. Um, uh, I think I've seen some stuff over uh, in Croatia uh, where Demir has been working on some things over there. Uh, there is, uh, France is doing a lot of things. Uh, Got to give a, a shout out to Vend Cliquet over there. He's with the International Emergency Drone Organization, AIDO. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that are being done by departments. Uh, Lincolnshire Police, I mean, you're seeing them on Twitter all the time. And mainly for, for finding lost people and how effective that's been. I mean, there's one great story where they went out, they'd done a search, they'd searched the area. There was a, it was an accident where a person was missing from the vehicle. 
They flew the drone. They found him, the guy actually not too far from the car in a ditch. Uh, and he would have died had the drone not found him. So, yes, we're learning a lot of things from agencies. And then I have to mention Gemma Alcock over with Search and Rescue. She's doing a lot of great work with drones in the U.K. Uh, with the Search and Rescue teams. So, yes, we have a lot to learn from each other. And especially where we have specialized areas that add to our overall cadre of uh, general responses. That, that kind of leads us into the next question, I think. I mean, so we have a number of years now around the world, uh, first responders using drones. At the same time, we have these different brands, Hotel, DJI, um, Para to come up with, with new drones, with new features, fixed wing, uh, thermal cameras, 4G uh, connectivity now. From a first responders point of view, what would be the ultimate drone? Like what kind of features and requirements would you think of if, if you were going to design uh, the ultimate drone for first responders? What's most important for those people? Well, uh, there's, there's a, you just asked a really uh, loaded question. I think that uh, the, the drone that public safety is looking for, when you look at the technologies and the things that are being worked on, let me just kind of give you a, a wish for the future. I want to have a reasonable sized drone that can fly longer uh, for multiple hours, that can give visual optics, that has zoom capability, that has thermal image capability, but then also ties into utilizing LIDAR uh, and then taking that all in, and pulling it into a synthesized process of doing a tactical streaming video that can also connect with, with artificial intelligence. Uh, for example, NASA is working on a project to say, let's send a drone out and go fly an area and let it identify the areas of damage because it's now comparing previous satellite imagery to the drone imagery. And now it only captures those areas that have damage. So that's, I'm just throwing that out there. But in, in addition to that, we're seeing as, as the programs mature, this is not too far off because we're working with this Esri and mapping thing that we're doing so that during disasters, uh, we're seeing out in the wildfires in California now, you, you're combining your digital imagery from the drone to your GIS uh, layers. And it starts being able to show people what's happened in certain areas that you can do the, the, the 360 views, that the panoramic views of an area that give that situational awareness and allow people who've lost their home see what their neighborhoods look like. But the GIS layers become really important as you see major, major wildfires and major hurricanes that destroy and devastate every geographic reference that's there. Homes are gone. Signs are gone. Roads aren't clear to see. And, and there's so many things that come with that with uh, with the. Uh, um, uh, debris removal and road, you know, road monitoring as far as roadways being open and closed. And, and I mean, the list goes on. Yeah, Romeo Dersher shared that with me once uh, when I met him at one of the conventions where they overlaid Google Maps with street names over aerial images and maps. So you could actually see what the names of the streets were. So rather than directing a fire crew to the blue house, they were able to show this and say, okay, on your phone, on Google Maps, you go to this intersection of these two streets. And I thought that was really a, a smart thing. Um, you mentioned longer flight times as one of the critical uh, requirements for, for first responders. I mean, right now you either switch out uh, batteries or you have multiple drones that you can alternate with. Um, another solution has been uh, tethered drones that can stay up for, for a prolonged uh, time. Do you see a use case for them? Is, is that the way to go that you can just put a drone up? You may not have the range of motion, but it can stay up for hours and uh, on end. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because, um, yes, I, we... Los Angeles City Fire probably coined this first, and that was identifying the tethered drone as kind of a tier one type of response. 
that as you arrive on the scene, that a strategically positioned vehicle immediately launches the drone to give you that quick overhead reconnaissance and maintains monitoring throughout. Because it's tethered, it maintains constant power. So it doesn't mean require any changing. The logistics are very limited. But, uh, you know, Photokite's a great example of having both uh, visual optics and thermal, and you can switch back and forth between the two, and it can be seen on a tablet by an incident commander. And again, that goes back to if you're doing an elevated stream, uh, albeit the tethered has a limit of 150 feet, uh, it's able to see certain things as far as the effectiveness of the fires, the heat signatures that may be coming through the roof and so on. And I know that LA City Fire is looking at putting a tethered drone on all of their battalion chief vehicles. So that means they'll have a tier one ability on every significant response they go to. And then they'll use the untethered drone to fly those tactical missions to find more information that they need specifically that, that a tethered drone is limited to do. Uh, and and to, to the point, uh, Pierce Fire Apparatus has gone to, to where they have a, what they call their situational awareness package. That is a drone that comes when you purchase your fire apparatus. So it can be on the cab of the apparatus or in a compartment and now be launched automatically from uh, on arrival. So, yeah, and it's simple. It's You push a button and it's up flying and you push a button and it lands. So which branch of public safety is using drones the most um, or drones, drone programs? So by our study, uh, we saw law enforcement is in the lead. Uh, we're starting to see that gap grow even more. We're seeing law enforcement adopting it and, and moving into it more quickly than fire. Uh, second is the, is the fire service uh, because of the things we've discussed. And then the third is emergency management, but they're, they're coming up faster too. So um, law enforcement, because of the criticality and the reconnaissance for those missions, fire, because they're starting to see the, the fire uh, and hazmat uh, capabilities and emergency management for understanding how bad is bad and ongoing situational awareness and, reco and recovery. And, and Charles, I want to talk about the instant mapping capabilities that we're starting to see from a lot of different manufacturers. Uh, we, we have SkyBrowse that can do, basically, you fly a video for a few seconds, a few minutes, and then you get a, a full, very precise map. Uh, we see Pix4D doing something similar as well. And then Skydio just released a, a software where they can do 3D mapping last week. Uh, how important is this? And how do you see the public safety departments kind of reacting to these kind of software? And is this something that really has an application? It has, a, it has a major application. I think that's what we're seeing is the maturity of the programs or when people realize they go through the phase of they got a, they got a drone in the sky and they go, oh, I can see things I couldn't see. And they're excited. And then they go, well, if, if we had Zoom, we can see even more. This is great. Then they get thermal image and they go, wow, we can see visual and thermal. Uh, and so then they get streaming. And, and it's like, so you see this, this phase process. That's because they continue to learn, except when we start putting this together. The data uh, analysis and mapping is crucial. And the fact that we have these vendors, SkyBrowse, Pix4D, Skydio, out there in, in a competing environment is great for public safety because they are going to continue to improve their products uh, to be something that's really important for us. And I, and I think we see some different angles of the technologies. So some of the technologies work when you have connectivity. Some don't work too well when you have connectivity. So you have to look at that as well as which model makes the most sense, because if you're in very austere conditions, you may not have connectivity. So you may end up using something like a PIX40 React that can be done on your, your own program, your internal, and then be able to put it to the cloud later. Uh, 
or if you have great connectivity, you can use SkyBrowse, Skydio, and or Pix4D. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of these things. And you've got SightScan coming out from Esri as well, which is which is kind of based on a Pix4D backbone. And I can see, you know, you had um, a hurricane and you had something that wiped out completely the area and you need to rebuild an actual map from five minutes ago, not from satellite six months ago. I can see how this would be life-saving. So uh, yeah, higher. I think you had a, another question. Yeah, I, th I think it's fair to say that all four of us are strong proponents of, of drones being used for good and to benefit society and help uh, save people's lives. Uh, Greg with the Pilot Institute has quite a reach and has quite a big audience. Kara uh, writes for DP Review. She reaches a lot of people. I reach quite a few people with Drone Excel. Then we have the Pixel Drone Show. What can we do to, to help you promote uh, drone responders and also just drones for good in general? Like, Are there things that, that you specifically think of that we could do to, to help you? Well, I think um, just getting the word out about drone responders and what we have to offer. And, and again, the, the important thing here is that membership in drone responders is free. And, and what we're doing in addition to that, we have the resource center, but we also have working groups. We have the major cities working group. We have the drone as a first responder working group. Uh, we just started the women in fire, fire service drones working group. Um, we've, we're doing a lot of different things that are out there. So promoting that, letting people know. And, and I think the other thing is uh, continuing for us to partner on how do we can create training opportunities where people are drawn to those really quality training programs that make them proficient and safe when they're flying in the airspace. Yeah, I can vouch to that. <laughs> proficiency is proficiency is the key. Uh, I, I have kind of a, a question that might be difficult for you to answer. What is your favorite story that you've heard where a public safety agency used a drone and and led to positive outcome? Oh well, now you're you're scrambling my head from different <laughs> ones, and I have to pick one. Um, you know, I think it would have to be the the. There was a, a use case in the UK where they had a, a, an 82 year old man who was lost in like heavy cane field. Um, and it was the drone that factually found him, identified his geolocation. He was just about gone. Uh, and then by coordinating those those uh, geo coordinates to their their kind of Coast Guard, if you will, a helicopter was able to come in and drop a um, a seat down to him to put him in and bring him out. And if it hadn't been for that combination of effort of uh, the ground searchers, uh, but you literally see this in the video where they find him and the rescuers get to him and then he's brought up, you know, in, in the basket. So um, that's probably one, but there are a lot of others. The one I told you about Lincolnshire where they found the guy off the road. Um, one funny story that I heard about early on was when they had a law enforcement had a guy who had, escaped them and was on a little bitty island in the in the Everglades and um, they were had a drone up and they said hey just want to let you know we know where you are uh, and we just want to let you know that in five minutes you have four alligators descending on your location and you can stay there or you can come to us in about 15 seconds he was in custody so that's um, you know we're seeing we're seeing the same thing where people are trying to escape a drone from law enforcement and they're flying over they see the drone they just stop so it's, it's having an impact. And then one more, I'm sorry, I'm just taking up. I can't, couldn't choose just one. You go to Atlanta PD flying interior to a murder suspect. They fly in, the guy sees the drone, puts his hands on his head, walks out to, to custody. Um, oh, I, I, okay. I can't forget this one. Chula Vista's situation. They're flying over. 
Uh, they're doing the reconnaissance because they've got the drones, the first responder program. It gets there in advance of police. They've got a report of a man with, they believe, a gun outside of a restaurant. The drone flies over, zooms in, and as it turns out, it's a cigarette lighter gun. Well, you can imagine in today's environment, that changes the whole dynamics and de-escalates the situation where police are able to easily walk in and say, look, you're making people nervous. Put that away or leave. And um, and nobody was hurt. So I, you're I starting to see when, situations. Yeah. I remember when that one was reported. And the fact that the, in the Atlanta situation, being able to fly interior now to do missions, uh, police officers not in harm's way walking in where they could be shot. Um, there, was a, there was a case in York County where they had a, they were, had a hostage situation for 12 hours. Uh, they just waited outside. They heard a gunshot. They didn't know what that meant. Did the guy you know, kill himself? Um, York County, Virginia Fire went in with their law enforcement team and flew in and could see that he actually had he killed himself. So nobody had to go in and take a chance in a dangerous situation. So we're seeing that there's basically three things that I identify what drones make a difference for. One, they enhance the safety for everybody involved, the responder and our citizens. Uh, it helps with uh, uh, situational awareness right now, and it helps to improve our effectiveness by better decisions because of information that we didn't have before. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite stories, uh, I think it was last year, I believe in Sacramento, California, where uh, the police officer actually flew a tiny uh, cinewhoop or FPV drone into a house or into an apartment. And they were able to basically get in there, scope the place out, see what the situation was before anybody had to go in. And it was a pretty tense and potentially dangerous situation. So to be able to, to send an FPV drone in uh, and, and keep everybody safe, I thought it was pretty uh, genius. So um, what is your favorite drone? It doesn't even need to be public safety related. You know, I don't have a favorite drone uh, because the favorite drone is really based on the circumstance that you're flying. So, and you're not going to get me on that hook because <laughs> I'll get in trouble with that my corporate <laughs> I would say my favorite drones are the ones that are corporate patrons, the drone responders and support what we do. There okay. you go. <laughs> all right. It's, all a, right. it's a, a question we ask all of our guests. So I throw it out there. Dutch the question. Well, uh, Charles, I, I really appreciate your time. I think we're, we're coming up to the, uh, to the end of the show. Um, is there anything that we missed that you think is important that, that our viewers or listeners uh, need to know about public safety, about drone responders? You said it's free. How can people get more information? Uh, just go to dronesponders.org. They can become a member and uh, it takes about three minutes. And then you have access to the resource center and all the folders and you'll see the other activities that are taking place. Uh, the announcement of different conferences that, that we're participating with that I think we have you guys involved with. Um, I think the, the other thing is if you're thinking about this, make sure you find out what you're getting into first. Because it's not just about buying and flying. There's a lot of logistics. There's maintenance. There's record keeping. There's training. There's all these things that go with it. Understand that first. And then the second thing is, uh, if you're when you get ready to get started, look around to other departments around you that have already started their programs. Use the map uh, to find out uh, where the programs are so that you can see that they're nearby. And then the other thing that we hope people can use the map for is to identify departments around them to help for regional training opportunities to bring people together for either mutual aid and or training. So that's, uh, that's my last recommendations. 
Well, we uh, appreciate your time. Definitely, please, listeners, watchers, please go and uh, take a look at Drone Responders. Please join if you're a public safety agency. Like we said, it's free. Uh, Charles, I know you have a weekly podcast with uh, Mike Rocher from the FA, getting getting the, the information straight from the top. So uh, Mike is a great guy. He has a ton of information, and he's always willing to share his information, just like you are. So uh, thank you for joining us, really. And uh, we, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please uh, subscribe so that uh, we know that uh, you can get all the notifications when we post new episodes. We have uh, plenty more people coming down the pipeline. But Charles, thanks again and, uh, and, and good luck with the program. Yes. One more thing. So I have to, I have to put this, this shameless plug in. If you're, if you're a public safety agency and you want to train your pilots, look at the Pilot Institute Public Safety Training Program that we partnered you guys with because it's the only one out there that covers Part 107 and COA training. So um, it's important for people to know that. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate the working relationship that we have. And uh, and we have more of these courses coming up. We have a NIST course that's right around the corner that I think is going to be really exciting. So, uh, Charles, thank you. And uh, we will uh, see you very soon. Thank, thank you. you all. Thank you.